Let's now turn to the Word of God. Our scripture reading this afternoon will begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11, we'll read that chapter. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So far from Second Samuel, we'll also turn now to Micah, the prophecy of Micah, chapter 2. should mention, all, uh, as you're searching for it, all the uh, readings that we're uh, reading this afternoon are related to the theme of coveting. That's the uh, commandment, the tenth commandment that we'll be examining this afternoon. So Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who divide, wi- devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy, you strip the, robe, the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people." I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So far from the Old Testament, we'll turn also briefly now to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verses 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool! 
This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Finally, we're just going to read a few verses from the letter of James. As James speaks of this matter of coveting, James 1, verses 12 to 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So far, the reading of God's word. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith and a confession uh, adopted by this church. And this afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 44. It's on page 558 of your books of praise. Lord's Day 44 there. The question is, what does the 10th commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, 
we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. So far, the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the uh, most basic aspects of our lives is the reality of boundaries. Right? We see them everywhere. Boundaries. It's one of the first things that we have to teach our children. Uh, There are certain things that are off-limits. Uh, There are things that they uh, can do, and there are things they cannot do. Uh, There are places they can go and places they cannot go. Uh, Boundaries make up an essential part of our existence, uh, so much so even that we, we could not imagine what it is to even exist, to live as human beings without boundaries. Uh, we have our, our personal boundaries, uh, a space that is to be respected. Uh, we have the boundaries of the law, right? What we can and cannot do under the law. Uh, we have national boundaries, uh, geographical boundaries, defining what is and what isn't our country. And boundaries matter. Uh, without boundaries, our lives would be chaotic. Uh, If the boundaries that mark our home and our property, for example, uh, were not respected, then there would be no such thing as my home or your home, uh, my space or your space. Uh, Anyone who wanted to could just walk through the door or, for that matter, remove the door altogether. Uh, If the boundaries that, that make up the law, too, were not respected, life would be chaotic and unlivable. If national boundaries were erased, Uh, then laws would become meaningless. Uh, At what point do those laws apply? So we know that boundaries matter. Uh, And one of the things that we learn from Scripture is that boundaries also matter to God. Boundaries matter to God. It's not just an accident of of human life. Uh, We find in Genesis 1 that God values boundaries. Uh, In creation, He made distinctions between this thing and that thing. Uh, He set a boundary between the heavens and the ocean, and then another boundary between the ocean and the dry land. Uh, He made male and female and made distinctions between them. Uh, He set boundaries for them. Uh, He gave them the garden, all the trees of the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He set a boundary there, Uh, and he told them that is off-limits. Well, we've come now to the 10th commandment, uh, the last commandment of God's law. And this commandment really is fundamentally all about boundaries, about respecting and honoring that which is off-bounds under God's law uh, and and choosing not to violate those boundaries. Uh, And the 10th commandment, the 10th commandment takes this issue, which is really there in every commandment, right? You, You have this issue of boundaries in every commandment, the Tenth Commandment takes this, this issue and applies it not to where we go with our feet or what we do with our hands or say with our words, but what we do in our hearts. It's the only commandment that speaks directly to our hearts. Uh, it's the only commandment that really could not be enforced in any way because it deals with what lives in the privacy of our hearts. Now, as we think about this commandment, as we've done with all of the Ten Commandments, we really want to keep our focus on the the, the theme of of the law of liberty, that God has given us this law as our Father because He desires us to be a free people and wants us to know how to live as as a free people. We want to keep that 
that purpose in mind. Also, as we deal with a, a law that has to do with our very hearts. Well, with the Ten Commandment, then the Tenth Commandment, we want to begin perhaps by understanding, uh, making sure that we understand what this commandment actually means. Uh, the word that is used in Exodus 20, uh, in the Ten Commandments, the word that is used for covet uh, is one of several different Hebrew words for desire. It's not just the generic term for desire. And, and there's a nuance in that word that I think is important for us to understand. If you go to Deuteronomy 5, you, you may know that there's two renditions of the Ten Commandments, one in Exodus 20, the other Deuteronomy 5. If you go to Deuteronomy 5, you'll notice two different words are being used. There is a generic desire, and then there is the same word covet. And the ESV uh, honors that by saying desire and, and covet. Well, here in, the, in, the, in Exodus 20, the word covet is used in both Uh, is used twice in in the Ten Commandments. Now, I don't want to draw too strong a distinction here, but there is a nuance that matters. Uh, The the word, one of the words for for desire, one of the two in in Deuteronomy 5, is this generic term for to desire. So it's often used when a person is thirsty and desires water or hungry and desires food. Uh, It's a sort of thoughtless desire, a desire you didn't, you didn't, choose you didn't decide upon it's just that desire is is there uh, thoughtless desires but the other word and this is the word that's used in in uh, exodus 20 refers more often to things that you choose to desire things that you in other words set your desire upon now to put it even even more sharply it, it refers to a deliberate choice made within the heart that says I would like to have that thing, and I'm willing to entertain in my heart the possibility of how to get that thing. That's the nuance here with this word. Well, in such cases, in that kind of desire, uh, there's a defining moment, a defining action that takes place in the heart uh, where we go from, hey, look at that, to I would like to know how I might get that. There's a crossing of a boundary. Uh, That moment of decision and transition from observing something that may be desirable to entertaining the idea of obtaining it, uh, it might be a very momentary decision, uh, but it sets us down a path that leads to, if possible, leads to acquiring that which we desire. And you see this so clearly in the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. David is hanging out in Jerusalem while the men are off at war. And as he's standing on the roof, he, he notices, he observes a beautiful woman. And then he sets his eyes upon her. And there, within the confines of his heart, there's a decision made, isn't there? A decision that I will gaze at her. Uh, And that decision uh, ultimately proceeds to, and I think I will try to get her, if at all possible. At some moment, David makes this decision, whether he even does it consciously or not, from noticing to gazing upon to inquiring. You notice, David does not yet decide, I'm going to get her. That doesn't happen right away. Uh, the getting, the getting is still in the uh, what you might call the investigation stage. Let's find out if it's possible to acquire her. Uh, so he sends his servant. Let's just find out 
who this woman is. But in principle, right, in principle, the decision is already made. If possible, I will get her. That, that brothers and sisters, is coveting. That's what we're talking about when the Tenth Commandment says you shall not covet. Now, it might be helpful for us to just make a few distinctions here uh, between some uh, related concepts, uh, because sometimes we, we jumble these things together. I want to distinguish between three, three different related terms, envy, jealousy, and coveting. Uh, envy, envy is a desire for something that someone else has, along with a resentment or hatred for them for having it. That's envy. It is uh, Envy says essentially, as long as I don't have it, you can't have it either. Now you notice with envy, it doesn't actually matter whether you could or couldn't even acquire the thing. You can envy, for example, someone's good looks or someone's intelligence, even though that's something you could not actually acquire. Uh, so it, it's not just a desire for what they have, but a resentment or hatred against them for having it. Now, can you think of some examples of envy uh, within the Bible? Maybe some of you children can think of some examples of envy. Or maybe the, the story of Cain and Abel comes to mind. Uh, it's one of the most shocking stories of envy. Abel had the wisdom to offer a sacrifice that was pleasing to God, and Cain didn't. And Cain, instead of learning from his mistake and following his brother's example, as God, in fact, urges Cain to do, instead he's envious of his brother and kills him. You notice that's very different from coveting. He didn't see something his brother had and say, I want to get that, uh, which he might have done, which God even encourages him to do. But instead... He hates his brother. As long as I don't have it, you can't have it either. Now, envy envy really is one of the most irrational behaviors, isn't it? Uh, when you think about it, you see it even in children. Uh, and, and it really speaks to the, the depth of, uh, of depravity and selfishness within the human heart. Uh, those of you who have children, you know this all too well. If you give two different gifts to two different children, if they're not exactly the same gift, what's going to happen each one's immediately going to look at the other and say, I wonder if they got a better gift than, than I did. It's a very irrational thing because you might otherwise have enjoyed the gift you received, but, but envy uh, does not allow it. Uh, Proverbs 14 perhaps says it best. Uh, Proverbs 14 verse 30, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. You might think of another example of envy, uh, the envy of the Pharisees uh, and the religious leaders against Jesus. Uh, the, the Gospels, Matthew and Mark, particularly highlight uh, this envy. Uh, and, and they even tell us that Pilate, as he was uh, interrogating Jesus, Pilate recognized that Jesus was handed over out of envy. Uh, it was Jesus' popularity, his influence, uh, his, the respect that he had among the people that drove the religious leaders to hate him. And again, it's completely irrational. By killing Jesus, you're not going to make the people like you better. It's just, if I can't have it, he can't have it either. That is, that's envy. Jealousy, jealousy is something slightly different. Now, we often mix the terms up between envy and jealous. We say that someone is jealous when what we really mean is they are envious. Uh, and it's not just English. A lot of languages do this. But there is at least a kind of jealousy that is clearly distinct from envy. 
Uh, and jealousy is the desire to keep for yourself what is rightly yours. To keep for yourself what is rightly yours. And then a corresponding anger against anyone who might take it away from you. Uh, and the reason it's important to distinguish between jealousy and envy, you might be thinking this already, is God himself says, I am a jealous God. It's very different from an envious God. God desires and insists upon what is rightly His. Uh, the most common uh, virtuous example of jealousy would be in marriage, isn't it? Uh, a husband should be jealous for his wife. Now, we're not talking about you know, irrational jealousy or paranoid jealousy, uh, but a healthy, holy jealousy for his wife. Uh, she is mine, I am hers, and no one shall come between us. Uh, so then also God is a jealous God. Uh, the Apostle James says it as well. Uh, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, that nothing would come between us and our God. So there's envy, there's jealousy, and then there's covetousness. And you can see these are related but distinct uh, ideas that we should actually be careful not to, to confuse. Uh, what then is coveting? Coveting uh, is a desire for what belongs to your neighbor and an openness to the idea of taking it. A desire of, for what belongs to your neighbor and an openness to the idea of taking it. Now you notice coveting is different from envy. It's not necessarily resentful. You might not resent your neighbor for having what you don't uh, possess. Uh, for example, you might covet their house, steal it, and then be relieved to find out later that they actually found another good house. Uh, so there was no particular ill will against them. You just took what they had. Uh, you might think here of uh, uh, Ahab and Naboth. Ahab coveted Naboth's field, uh, but initially, initially he just saw the field and he made an offer for it. That's not coveting. He saw something. There's no particular ill will yet towards Naboth. He saw it and desired it and made an offer for it. But once Naboth said, no, I can't take that offer, then it becomes coveting because in that moment at Jezebel's influence, Ahab begins to think, how might I just take this field? In that moment, it is coveting. Another way coveting, too, is different from envy is, is though you can be envious of anything, even things you can't acquire like someone's good looks, uh, coveting involves a particular decision to take. So it is something that can be uh, acquired. Having made then those, those distinctions between uh, envy and jealousy and, and coveting, uh, we might also, if we had more time, we might also talk about greed. It's a related concept. In fact, in Greek, the words for coveting and greed are, are the same word, but uh, we won't do that. Uh, I want to return now to the point we started on, now that we understand what coveting is, the point we started on, uh, the value of boundaries. As we saw before, coveting is not just an issue of desire. It is a decision to set your heart upon that which is off limits, that which is out of bounds, and there is a certain choice that, if possible, I will take it. Uh, coveting then always refers to that which is off bounds. So if you see your neighbor's uh, house uh, and you desire it and you make an offer and buy it, there's no coveting. Involved. There's no sin involved because it wasn't off bounds. If you uh, consider how you might take it uh, from your neighbor, even if unlawfully, there is coveting, there is sin. 
Uh, There you have crossed a boundary within the confines of your heart. Uh, You have, even if it's still within your heart, you've violated your neighbor's property. You've regarded uh, what is his as potentially yours for the taking, if you can figure out how to take it. Uh, Likewise, with your neighbor's wife, of course, in this case, there's no lawful way to take her. Uh, He he can't sell her, uh, as I'm sure you know. Uh, Coveting, uh, then, is is more than just just noticing or appreciating even her beauty. Or if you're single, thinking to yourself, I would love to someday have a wife like that. That's not necessarily coveting. Uh, Coveting is desiring her desiring your neighbor's wife and entertaining, at least in your head, the idea of somehow having her. That is coveting. Now, what we want to see here, uh, what we want to notice is the key issue here with coveting. The key issue is that you've crossed a boundary within your heart. That's the key issue. A moral boundary has been crossed. This is why the catechism, when it speaks of coveting, even though the Tenth Commandment only speaks of coveting your neighbor's property and gives a whole bunch of examples, when the Catechism deals with this issue, it doesn't restrict it to your neighbor's stuff. It, it, it says desiring anything that is off bounds, anything that is against God's law. Uh, it, it extends that principle um, because it recognizes the key issue is you've crossed a boundary within your heart. You've desired, you've chosen to desire what you ought not to desire. And this is why the same word for coveting, the same word that you find in Exodus 20, uh, is also used of Eve uh, in the garden. When Satan tempts Eve, uh, it says she found the fruit desirable, the fruit that God had forbidden, and then it uses the word coveting. Uh, Even there, uh, even though it has nothing to do with her neighbor's property, it is still coveting because in her heart, she sees it, she says this is good, and she begins to entertain the idea of taking it. In the same way, if you remember the story of Jericho, um, Achan uh, saw certain possessions that God had committed to destruction. They were to be altogether destroyed. Achan saw, and the same word is used, he coveted those possessions. A boundary was crossed in his heart. He should have looked at all that and immediately thought, no, this is banned. This is belonging to destruction, uh, devoted to destruction. But the thought instead crossed his mind, you know, I could have these if I'm careful with it. I could have this if I'm, if I'm clever about getting it. And so uh, even though the Tenth Commandment mentions only our neighbor, the issue extends far more broadly. So let me ask you, are there things that God has forbidden that you allow yourself to covet? That you allow your mind to at least entertain the idea of obtaining? And you might still be a thousand miles away from actually taking it. uh, and, And there may be all sorts of obstacles that you would have to cross in getting it. But do you allow yourself to entertain the idea? If so you've crossed a very serious boundary within the confines of your heart. And the only difference between where you are now and the actual theft or murder or adultery or whatever else it may be, the only difference is time and opportunity. You've already crossed the boundary. That means you're in a very dangerous place. It means you're already 
trespassing. You're already in sin against God. And that's the second point that we want to then consider. Uh, We want to look at the heart that covets, the condition of the heart that covets. I'll say it simply, the heart that covets, that allows itself to covet, is a heart that is far from God. The heart that is willing to covet, that is willing to cross a boundary, with, even, even if it's in the privacy of my heart, uh, where no one can yet see, that is already a heart that is living far from God. Because the truth is, God does know the heart. God knows what you desire and what you allow yourself to desire. Uh, the heart that covets is a heart that essentially says, I don't care that God sees as long as other people don't see or as long as I can get away with it. And that's a heart that's far from God. You see this so plainly right in the example of David and Bathsheba. He saw her and he should have turned away immediately, but instead he was willing to gaze. And then he opens his mind to the possibility of taking. He investigates. Uh, and he might have made all sorts of excuses to himself. This is what we do uh, in, our own, in our own heads. We, you know, he might have said to himself, I'm just finding out who she is. That's all. Uh, I just, I just, I'm just wondering who she is. Uh, we deceive ourselves in, in, in these sorts of ways. But he sends his servant to find out. Uh, and whether he's being honest with himself or not about it, his heart and mind were already heading towards one goal, and that is the goal of taking her. And that means he has a heart that is already far from God. And then once he finds out, he summons her. And summoning her, he then seduces her. It's the sort of story that uh, afterwards people tend to say, you know, it all happened so fast, I didn't even realize what I was doing. Well, that's because your heart already made the decision to do it long before you actually did it. Uh, You were then, after that, only hiding from yourself what you were actually doing. And then, of course, having impregnated her, he tries to cover it up by having Uriah come home and sleep with her. And we read all about the elaborate uh, attempts that that David made to to cover it up. And then when that didn't work, he had Uriah killed. Well, by the time that David was confronted by Nathan the prophet, uh, we're at least nine months down the road. Because now we've got a baby who's about to be born, or excuse me, has already just been born uh, when, when Nathan confronts David. And so for nine months at least, David has been plotting, scheming, planning, violating, sinning, crossing boundaries, and in short, living far, far from God, hiding from God, fleeing from God's spirit. Not letting his heart be examined by the Spirit of God. He's acting out the the exteriors of religion, but denying God within. And this is why when David is finally confronted by Nathan the prophet, uh, and and David finally comes to terms with his sin, uh, and by God's grace, God breaks him down and and brings him to repentance. What's David's prayer in, in Psalm 51? It's not, only, it's not only God forgive me for the bloodshed, which he does uh, pray, but it is also God create in me a pure heart. Create in me a pure heart because the heart that's, that's been in me for at least nine months, if not longer, has not been pure. Uh, a heart, uh, it's been a heart that's far, far from God and nothing's going to save me until my heart is right with God again. So there it is, the heart that is willing to covet is a heart that is already far from God. 
In the New Testament, the, the word for covetousness, uh, which as I mentioned, is the same word for greed. Uh, the word for covetousness and greed is, is very closely tied uh, to the concept of idolatry. You see this several times in the New Testament. Uh, in, in three different passages, uh, Paul makes the connection. So Colossians 3, verse 5 Uh, He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or Ephesians 5, verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, or excuse me, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. One more, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11 Uh, Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. There seems to be a clear connection, doesn't there, between coveting and idolatry. And what both greed and coveting and idolatry uh, have in common is they both proclaim, I stand at the center of my universe. I am entitled to have what I desire. I deserve to get what I want. If I want X, whatever X is, then I shall take it. And so the boundary has already been crossed within the heart. Now it's just a matter of how will I get it. So again, the heart that covets is a heart that's far from God. And the heart that covets is also a heart that's far from your neighbor. God made us to dwell in community. God gave us uh, to one another. God uh, intends for us to fill the earth and and live together in it, in fellowship, in love, particularly now as Christians, to dwell together in unity, uh, to love our neighbor, to enjoy friendship and fellowship. But the heart that covets is a heart that runs directly against that design of God and chooses to live far from one's neighbor. You get a really ugly graphic depiction of this in Micah chapter 2. This chapter is addressed particularly to the rich and the powerful in the land, and it speaks to this issue of coveting. Uh, Micah 2 verse 2, They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and then take them away. They oppress a man in his inheritance, uh, a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Uh, Those who covet, when given the opportunity, also take. They steal. They steal fields. They steal houses. They steal inheritances. They defraud those who trust in them. Uh, He says at verse 8, You strip the rich robe from those who pass by you trustingly with no thought of war. It's a heart that lives very far from his neighbor. In the chapter, Micah 2 really helps us to appreciate how how ugly and how sad uh, coveting really is. Uh, What's the result of coveting? Uh, Micah says it, you send mothers out of their homes. You drive children away from, from, from their homes. You make homeless people out of, out of innocent children. Uh, great job. You know, there you go. You win. There's your world that you choose when you choose to covet. And it gives no satisfaction or joy either, does it, to the one who covets. You, know, you violate your neighbor. What do you get from it? Because that's how sin works, isn't it? it? It promises, but it never delivers. It's idolatry, false gods that make promises they can't keep. And then idolatrous hearts sold to sin who choose again and again to believe those promises. 
And ultimately, of course, it leads to death. That's what James highlights in James uh, chapter 1. Sin starts with that desire. Uh, here we need to think about the same, the same sort of desire. We're speaking Greek now, so he doesn't use the same word. Uh, but uh, it's the same desire he's, he's speaking about. Uh, sin begins with desire. Not legitimate desires. There are such a, there's such a thing as legitimate God-given desires. But here it's desire that disregards God. Desire that has crossed a boundary. And that desire, says James, that desire gives birth to sin. Even while it still lives inside the heart. It hasn't yet expressed itself in action. That sin is growing and it's developing and it's taking form uh, and eventually it's going to be born. It's what the psalmist uh, says in Psalm 36 uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and, and hated. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good, and he does not reject evil. You hear that line? He, he refuses to reject evil. So then desire gives birth to sin. Suddenly it comes out, and this is why we so often say it all happens so fast, because it's been growing, developing, nurturing itself within your heart for a long time before it actually happened. It all happens so fast because you've been mentally training yourself, preparing yourself for it for such a long time. And that sin, says James, when it's fully grown, uh, because it starts small, even the sin acted out, begins small. When it's fully grown, it gives birth to death. And for David, that tiny little sin began with, let's just find out who she is. Let's just investigate. And it ended in death. Ended in death for Uriah, uh, death for the baby, and, and death for much of the line of David. The heart that covets then, is a heart that is walking down a road that's going to end in death. It's not going to end in a good place. And that's why the boundary should never have been crossed at the beginning of that road. Had you chosen at the beginning of the road to get off that road and get back onto what Christ calls the straight and narrow, while it was still at the beginning, you might have gone a very, very different way. And so, brothers and sisters, if that's, if that's where you are, then God is calling you, even now, even if you're down that road some ways, God is calling you, urging you, get off that road while you still can. All right, then we should wrap this up. Uh, Here's here's the thing then. This last commandment draws draws our attention to the heart, uh, perhaps the one place that that we're not prepared to go. All the other commandments, we're, we're talking about actions, specific things. We can sometimes tell ourselves, well, uh, I didn't do that specific thing, so I'm guiltless as far as this commandment goes. Well, this commandment takes us straight to, to the heart. I sometimes wonder whether this is why in uh, Romans 7, uh, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the law and how the law convicts us uh, and exposes sin, uh, Paul cites the 10th commandment uh, as an example of how the law exposes sin uh, because it was perhaps this commandment that break broke through for him uh, the proud exterior that says i haven't done this i haven't done this i haven't done this and then you get to coveting and says now how's your heart before god and that is the point that finally breaks paul and sees the uh, helps him to see the the misery uh, that still lives in him well we've seen that god gave us this law the ten commandments to set us free 
And we've seen that God's heart for us, God's purpose for us, is that we would be a free people. We've seen that sin is slavery. That it's slavery to delusion, slavery to lies, and it's slavery that robs us of our joy and, as we see now, takes us down a road that leads to death. I hope in, then, that in the last weeks as we've been meditating on God's law uh, that we've grown in our understanding of the freedom that God is calling us towards, uh, that we've grown in our desire for, for that freedom. And we've come to see how much we actually need that freedom, how much we're still, even now, being robbed of that freedom and how sin destroys that freedom. But in the process, as the law does that, it instructs us in the way of freedom. It leads us towards the God who sets us free. Uh, In the process, it also exposes sin. uh, And it exposes some pretty ugly sin along the way. It exposes areas in our lives that are not right with God. Areas in our hearts that are, are, are not living near to God. Well, where that's the case, that must be dealt with by the gospel. It must be. There's no other way to deal with sin than by the cross of Christ. This is where freedom begins. Now, there's no freedom in holding on to a whitewashed exterior uh, with a blackened, corrupted, sinful heart within, thinking, hoping, maybe I can just make a few small adjustments and and things are going to get better for me. No, that's not how it works. The eyes of the Lord, uh, says Psalm 37, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, to those who are clean, in other words, to those whose hearts are right with God. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ear is open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, where the law has exposed your sin, it needs to be dealt with by the gospel. Confess your sins to God, lay hold of the cross, uh, leave your sins there at the foot of the cross. Recognize that Christ died that awful death for you to, to remove your guilt and to remove your sin your corruption within. Uh, Recognize that that's what Christ came for. And so if you put your trust in him and you surrender your life to him and you follow him, whatever he calls you to lay down, whatever sin he calls you to forsake, he will repay a thousandfold over. True freedom begins there. It's just like with the Israelites. True freedom begins with getting out of Egypt. You're not going to be free until you're out of Egypt. Uh, And that came at the cost of the Passover lamb. Uh, Freedom is not found by fixing things up while you're still in Egypt. It's found in total unconditional surrender to God at the foot of the cross and recognizing that's my cross. I deserve to be there. That's my guilt that's being paid for there, uh, for the guilt of this coveting, transgressing heart. And it's only when we're, when we're standing there uh, in the forgiveness that's bought for us by the blood of Christ there, it's only then that we can learn to walk in true freedom. And for that, we need the Holy Spirit, right? That's what Christ sent his spirit to help us to do. It's what we saw already way back at the beginning before we started uh, going, down to, going through the Ten Commandments. Uh, back in Lord's Day 32, uh, we saw this. Christ died to save us. And what does it mean to save us? It's not just to save us from our guilt uh, so we can at least you know, not worry about hell. It's to save us from the sin itself. And for that, we need His Spirit. There's no freedom uh, from sin uh, except by the power of Christ's Spirit living in you. To live a new life, you need a new heart and you need the resurrecting power of the Spirit. And for that then, for that we need to be crying out to God. 
Isn't that what the Catechism says? Why do we preach the commandments so strictly? Uh, so, that while, so that not only we would seek more eagerly the forgiveness of our sins, but also so that while praying to God for the grace of the Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after His image. So here's the thing. If we've begun to see the beauty of God's law, uh, the beauty of the life that God's calling us to, uh, the, how, how precious the freedom is that God's calling us to, then we need to be praying for the grace of the Holy Spirit uh, to work within us. And something that needs to happen day by day, where day by day there's a progressive nature to it. Uh, we're turning from sin, turning to God. Uh, and the promise of God's law is God can and does do this in your heart as well uh, for all who are united to Christ by faith. And that's why the catechism, as soon as we're done with the Ten Commandments, the catechism turns towards prayer. Uh, what do we need to, to find the power to actually live out the life of freedom that God calls us to? We need the Spirit. And, and God gives His Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask Him for these gifts and thank Him for them. Uh, God is determined to renew you. Uh, and, and that must happen through prayer. Now, it's not going to happen all the way. The, the Ten Commandments, or the, the, the uh, Lord's Day uh, acknowledges this. It doesn't happen all the way in this life. Uh, and yet, it does happen. And what progress God, God works in you is worth it, uh, all the cost that it, 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 it costs. It's hard. It may be painful uh, as sin is, is cut out of us, excised out of our, uh, out of our hearts. It, it's a painful surgery, but it's a surgery that leads to life. It's something that's worth it a thousand times over. So here it is. The message of the law, uh, again, resoundingly says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the God who set you free, and you are my people, my treasured possession, my children whom I'm going to fill with my spirit to be called out of this world to be a, a people devoted to life and to the God who gives that life. Amen.